Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. Hi, Joshua. How are you today? I'm always so happy when we have a wonderful guest in the studio with us. I know. I'm very excited to have our guest here today. Quick introduction. He is a film and television director, producer, screenwriter, actor, author, all the things. His directing credits include Guilty as Charged, Oblivion, and of course, the delightful Elvira's Haunted Hills. He's directed episodes of Julie Brown's Strip Mall, all three seasons of Dante's Cove. His book, I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, How I Met Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and more, documents some incredible interviews he conducted for his fanzine Bizarre in the 1970s. And you can buy his latest book, The Epic Saga Behind Frankenstein, The True Story. It's out now. I don't have a copy, but it's coming. Uh, he's also a pretty damn good Romanian tour guide. Should fortune ever so favor you with the chance to go there with him. Please welcome the just delightful Sam Irvin. Hi, Sam. Hey, guys. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for letting me come on the show. Yeah, are you kidding? You're, you are just so, so much fun. And... Um, yeah, like I said, I, I had the um, just extreme pleasure of going to Romania for the uh, anniversary. Uh, I'm sure our listeners know all about it, but just to refresh, for the anniversary of Elvira's Haunted Hills. And you were there as just like the best tour guide, taking us all around to so many cool places. And it was just, <laughs> yeah, it was just, I don't know. I don't know what I expected like you to be like, but you just met and way exceeded like all expectations. So <laughs> I, I had a freaking blast. It was so much fun to go back to Romania after 20 some odd years and see the locations where we shot Elvira's Haunted Hills and visit the studio where we built the sets. And then also my other film, Oblivion 1 and 2, the sci-fi westerns that I did for Charlie Band's Full Moon and Paramount with George Takei and Julie Newmar and everybody, we built a whole yeah. Western town and we were able to go visit that studio where the Western town is still standing. It was just all incredible. It was such an amazing trip. And then to have Cassandra Peterson with us and, oh my God, it was something. It was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know. And it was like, there was so much packed into those days. Like we really accomplished so much, but is there anything that like stands out in particular from the trip to you? I know that's hard because, again, there's so many things. <laughs> I just you know it's going to sound corny, but I'm such a monster kid and fanboy. I just enjoyed hanging out with all you guys, <laughs> with all the other people that came on the tour. It was just so much fun to be amongst your tribe and have and have this really fun geeking out time of going and looking at this stuff. And it would it just wouldn't have been nearly as fun if it had just been a couple people or whatever it was just really fun to do it as a big group yeah I, yeah i totally agree the people and really made it it they did and i made friends for life i just i love you i love everybody that was on there it was just fantastic and we're and many of us are keeping in touch on a group chain on whatsapp yeah. it wasn't just okay bye <laughs> it was i think we're all gonna keep coming back together from time to time yeah, I yeah, I definitely hope so cuz it yeah, it, again, it was like I don't know what I expected cuz you're taking somebody that has this huge career, 40 years and with tons of fans in in Elvira and 
it's who's going to show up to this thing with this kind of big history and a big pool of folks. And then it turned out just to really be like the best. (laughs) No, it really was. And we did some really cool things like at the studio where we shot Elvira's Haunted Hills, they um, shoot Tim Burton's Wednesday there. So we got to see a lot of those um, sets and just really cool stuff that you wouldn't really think of you seeing on that tour. And it just made it really special, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I love showing pictures to people of the quad uh, from Wednesday and then showing them the outside. This is what it actually looks like. It blows people's minds because especially if you're not like a filmmaker, you're not like into film like production, you may just think these buildings exist somewhere or or maybe you just don't like even think about it. And so it's cool to see leases and how they use them. Yeah. From the ground up. Yeah. It really just demonstrates the, just the beauty of the art of Filmmaking and the especially magic of filmmaking. yes, yeah, <laughs> the magic of it and something that really I love like CGI stuff as much as like the next person I guess. But there's just something to be said for really like building a town and building it is these structures that stay and that you can yeah. visit and other films can be made and you'll go oh my gosh that's this place or that place. What is it, Joe? The from Back to the Future, like the oh yeah the um. Uh, the, like the city Delta. square or whatever that the city used, square yeah. that's used in everything <laughs> yeah that town yeah. square is and all sorts of stuff yeah and i just i love that it's yeah just something you don't get from like computer imagery uh again yeah. not Absolutely. to put it down because that's obviously a no, lot I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I like the practical stuff way better yeah um all right so this month on the show we are talking about hammer horror productions and obviously your book again, uh, which uh, I just have been listening a little bit to the audio. I'm trying to like get <laughs> caught up, with that, which is a whole other experience because the book itself, it's unlike any interview book I've read uh, or like something that compiles. It's just full of, sorry, for those on Patreon, you can actually see photos. But there's so many amazing photos, interviews, and also your like comments on it started out, I wanted, I, I had done a fanzine when I was a teenager called Bizarre on horror films. And I, as a high school graduation present, I got my parents to send me to London because I wanted to interview all my Hammer film idols. And I did. I, uh, like, I had lunch with Christopher Lee at Pinewood Studios where he was shooting The Man with the Golden Gun, the James Bond movie. And wow. I spent the rest of the afternoon hanging out with him on the set and meeting Roger Moore and then sharing a limo ride back to London with Christopher Lee and Hervé Villachez, who was drunk as a skunk and telling us all about the prostitutes he's hired since he'd been in London and we were in hysterics and all these crazy things. And and I wanted to interview Diana Rigg because I loved her in the Avengers TV series and I loved her in the James Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And she played Vincent Price's daughter in Theater of Blood. So I went to see her in a play on the West End, hoping to like try to get her to autograph my program at the stage door kind of thing. And lo and behold, Vincent Price is sitting right behind me in the theater. And I had already stalked him before in America. I'd gone to, I'd met him a couple times when he was doing a touring company of Oliver where he played Fagan and he was doing a lecture tour and I met him again. I turned around and before I could even open my mouth, he said, Sam, what are you doing here? And, and I couldn't even believe he remembered my name. How and old were you at that time? I was 17. Wow. And, and then he took me backstage and introduced me to Diana Rigg. And she ended up giving me an interview for the magazine. It was just, it was the most charmed, incredible time ever. And, and so I put all these interviews in my fanzine. 
And I went back to London even the following year and got more for another issue. But I had 35 of these time capsule interviews, which were golden. They were like, you know, with these actors at the height of their careers, actors, directors, composers, everything. And it was when they were in the thick of it, not not looking back 20 years later, not after they've, you know, told the story a hundred times and embellished it and honed it and made it, you know, politically correct. There's some raw answers in this and yeah. in some of these interviews where you can't believe what they're saying about some of their colleagues. And they're just golden. And so I wanted to collect all 35 of those into a book. And then I, when I started writing the introduction to each one of how I bamboozled getting each of these interviews, those stories were really funny and interesting and almost sometimes as good as the interviews. And then oh, I realized I really need to set up how I started the fanzine and being a, a closeted gay monster kid growing up in Asheville, North Carolina. And it just, what it ended up becoming was a coming of age memoir that was laced with 35 interviews that I happened to conduct when I was a teenager. And yeah. so it's half and half. And I just, it was the most fun to write. And I think, I think it just, I'm very proud of how it turned out. And you're right. There's an experience with the visuals. There's over 400 photographs in the book that are very important to see, but there, but I also did an audiobook version of this, which is only, it's only 21 hours. <laughs> and <laughs> I've got all these guest stars to come. Elvira, Cassandra Peterson wrote the foreword to the book. So she mm -hmm. reads her foreword. Julie Brown from Just Say Julie, Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun. Yeah. Uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. She's one of my closest pals. So she reads Love my her. author bio at the end. But then the interviews, anybody that was still alive, I asked them if they would re-record their answers. And they all said yes. Um, Jane Seymour, Stephanie Beecham, Linda Hayden, Madeline Smith, Chloe Franks, all these wonderful people. And then for people, for some of the interview subjects, for the other interview subjects who are no longer with us, like Diana Rigg, who I just idolize, I asked Juliet Mills, Haley Mills' sister, they're the daughters of Sir John Mills, this great British acting dynasty. And Juliet was famous for a series, a TV series in the 60s called The Nanny and the Professor. And she had known Diana Rigg, and they had actually done a play together on the West End. And she was delighted to be asked to do, the not imi imitate her, but just in the spirit of yeah. doing that. And she did Diana Rigg and a couple of others. And her husband in real life is Maxwell Caulfield from Grease 2. Oh, Grease 2, yeah. yeah. All these things. And, and I've worked with, I've actually directed both of them in, in different shows and movies. And in fact, Maxwell was in Oblivion 2 and was in Romania with me. But he did the voice of Ralph Bates and Shane Bryant, who were both Hammer film stars. And, and we have other guest stars, Olivia Dabo from Conan the Destroyer and the Wonder Years does Ingrid Pitt's yeah. voice for Ingrid Pitt's interview. And I'm, I'm just so proud of it. It's a great audiobook, which you can get on Audible, iTunes and Amazon. And the book itself is available in hardcover and paperback on Amazon. 100% of the profits from the book go to the Trevor Project, which is benefiting LGBTQ youth. And it was a, a charity that was very close to Cassandra Peterson, who recommended it. I wanted an LGBTQ 
charity and it was honing it down as to which one I was going to go with. And she recommended that. And I thought, oh, my God, this is my coming of age. Yeah. <laughs> All about my youth as a closeted gay kid. This is absolutely perfect. So it's for a great cause. And not I'm not getting one dime, which is why I'm very happy to promote it. <laughs> and all, all the money goes to the Trevor Project. So check it out on Amazon. It's called I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, How I Met Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and more. And, and there's a lot more. There's all kinds of cool stuff. And yeah. of, of interest to certain members of our LGBTQ listenership, I go into some interesting things. There's some horror stars who, let's just say, got a little flirtatious. Uh, <clears throat> and one of the chapters is called Fifty Shades of Dark Shadows. Need I say more? <laughs> yeah, and that is that is definitely a, a good selling point for it. Something else is really, obviously, we like the tea, right? Um, but what I really am surprised by is because hearing you like talk about it before I like got a copy and started going through it, it's 17 years old writing this fanzine and getting to chat with these people and you think what kind of questions is some like 17 year old kid gonna ask but there's some really you at 17 you were a better interviewer at least with the questions than some <laughs> than like storied people are like there's some really good questions in here that you just you really get into not only just about their lives but like producing and the creation of film you do get some great obviously there's one here with christopher lee about like his thoughts on the wicker man as it's coming up and man it's such a cool thing to preserve but there's just also really great questions you ask that offer this like depth to these people, these wow. like these icons wow. of, of horror. That's, that just makes it even more fun to read. It's not, let's see, you know what I mean? I what think all of us have been to enough Q&A <laughs> stuff in fandoms where you get people, it's like, that answer is out there a thousand times. Why Why waste that? Again, not everybody knows, but not to, I don't yeah. want to put people down, but sometimes it's like these, Yeah, think about I, what you want to ask. <laughs> and I, I so there's some good that. stuff. I, I appreciate that. And I really it just came natural, naturally to me. I, I don't know. It's funny because people have said, you should just reprint your entire, all of your fanzines. And I'm like, oh my God, no, I'm so embarrassed about the reviews I wrote because A, my mind, I've changed my mind on so many films, including yeah. Brides of Dracula, which we're going to be talking about later. And I'll tell you about that. But, but also my writing and, and being a critic was very primitive, and I just am way too embarrassed to proliferate all of that nonsense. If super fans want to go out and find these things on eBay, fine, but I'm not going to proliferate that stuff. But the <laughs> interviews really were special. When I reread all of those, I was very proud of what I was able to get, and I was just astonished at how Frank and open most of these interviewees were about answering mm -hmm. the questions. And so honestly and rawly, it was, like, yeah. it was like, whoa, this is great. There's a lot of politically incorrect stuff. There's a lot of stuff that this is a whole other era where right. they could never get away with seeing or saying some of the things they do. It's, you know, kind of shocking at times. And I had to put a couple of disclaimers. And so anyway, it just, I just found them to be really fascinating and, and really obviously wanted to preserve those so we did yeah i'm really glad you did and i'm really glad that you released this because it is especially for a horror lover there's just stuff in here that yeah i just can't imagine you could get anywhere else and again there is something about yeah just the candidness 
it, yeah. before a time where everything is so structured now, and especially with yeah. social media and all these things, people are very careful in a way, which, oh, yeah. is somewhat, well, which is good not to say they should just go. Yeah. There's just well, very as, as an example, just <laughs> one example is that it, in interviewing Ingrid Pitt, who I became very close friends with and absolutely adored her. She was the star of the Vampire Lovers, Countess Dracula. She was a vampire in House that Drip Blood. She was in The Wicker Man. She, she was like the queen of horror back in those days. Yeah. And in fact, I even, I was her aide de camp at the famous Monsters convention in New York in 1975. And she, so I adored her. She loved me. She could, I was not out, but I am a thousand percent certain she could sense that I was gay. And we just palled around and had a fabulous time. In the interview, she outed Shandor Ellis, who was her leading man in Countess Dracula, and had, and he was also in Evil of Frankenstein and And Soon the Darkness, which was a suspense thriller. He was the psycho killer in that. Anyway, and she called him a poof. Oh, wow. <laughs> and said that their chemistry didn't work because he was a poof. And knowing Ingrid, as I did... I know that she didn't have a homophobic bone in her body. I know it wasn't said in any kind of malice. I know that she wasn't. And it was also just the time period it was. We, people, there was no discussion about was it right or wrong to out people. There was th That hadn't even come up yet. That, right. that was a big topic of a moral issue that, that came into being during the AIDS crisis when people were questioning, should we be out? Should we stay in the closet? All this stuff. It just, in the early 70s, nobody had discussed even the topic of it. And, and she just blurted it out. And when I was wow. interviewing the composer Malcolm Williamson, who I'll talk about this in a few minutes, who did Brides of Dracula, he... David Peel, who plays the vampire in it, and said that he would he was very effeminate behind the scenes and would bring his poodles to set. And I'm just like, I'm dying because I'm closeted and I, I want to ask them even more questions about this, but I'm afraid yeah. it'll turn the spotlight on me and reveal more about me. And so anyway, it's just a it's pretty cool though to go back and read it in a in the time capsule kind of way and yeah. put it in the proper perspective of the era in which these things were spoken. Yeah, absolutely. But, and again, in some that is language shifts and changes and the way we yeah. look at these things has definitely really changed. And yeah, we could probably have a whole other conversation about yeah. like, the politics of LGBTQ yes. queer culture. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so it is fabulous. I'm, I'm so glad that, exi it, that it exists. And then and before the, we move on, I want to also, I have to plug my new book. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, we were going to. So It's called <laughs> The Epic Saga Behind Frankenstein, The True Story. And this is a film, it was a two-part NBC Frankenstein adaptation in 1973. It's the 50th anniversary this year. Wow. And it was right at the time that I went to England that I saw it. And I put it on the cover of my fanzine Bazaar because it absolutely blew me away. But, and it was an all-star two-part Frankenstein thing. It starred James Mason David McCallum, who just passed away, okay. Leonard Whiting from Romeo and Juliet plays Dr. Frankenstein, Michael Sarazen played the monster, Jane Seymour plays the female creature, it also had Agnes Moorhead, oh, wow. um, Sir Ralph Richardson, <laughs> Sir John Gilgood, Tom Baker, who went on to play Dr. Who, just the most incredible cast. It was the biggest budget television film up to that time. It was the biggest budget horror film 
for cinemas or TV up to that time. Just a hugely epic production. Took them, they, they were shooting from March of 73 till um, July of 73 in, in England at Pinewood Studios wow. and locations around. And, but what struck me when I saw the film was that Dr. Frankenstein was 22 years old and gorgeous, Romeo, from Zeffirelli's Romeo. Oh, wow. And the creature that he creates is gorgeous. This was a completely innovative and new way of approaching the story because in Mary Shelley's book and every Frankenstein film up to that time, the creature was pretty hideous <laughs> and scary looking. The writers, who were a gay couple, Christopher Isherwood, who wrote the Berlin stories the cabaret is based on, and his mm -hmm. lover, Don Bacardi, world-famous portrait artist, they injected all kinds of queer subtext into this. And they came up with this idea that if we let the creature be beautiful, now there can be the subtext that the creator and his creature are in love and... He is teaching the creature who has the, he's implanted the brain of David McCallum, the character, but he has sort of amnesia. So he has to teach him how to be a dandy in high society in the same way that Professor Higgins in My Fair Lady and, oh. you know, <laughs> yeah. is, is teaching Eliza Doolittle and getting her ready to be presented in, in high society. And Dr. Frankenstein actually takes him on a date to the opera. <laughs> and as I'm watching this as a 17-year-old closeted kid and seeing these two beautiful men going through these machinations of dating and living together in this apartment, and it just screamed out at me, the gay subtext. It was just like, for me, it wasn't subtext. For me, yeah, it was right like, there. what? This is incredible. And only when the creature starts to deteriorate and his skin starts to get boils and he starts to look ugly, then our beautiful Dr. Frankenstein no longer is interested <laughs> and kind of abandons him. Mm. Very, a very harsh commentary on the gay community. And, yeah. and, but the movie, and there's lots of other gay subjects in the movie, too. The James Mason character is based, actually, directly based on Dr. Pretorius from Bride of Frankenstein, who was very obviously gay mm -hmm. in that film. One of the, one of the great gay characters of early, early cinematic history, really. And, in fact, the early drafts of the script even called him Dr. Pretorius. And he's the one who suggests making the bride. And right. he uses chemicals instead of electricity. And it's all taken from Bride of Frankenstein. And which, of course, for those who don't know, was directed by a gay director, James Whale. Yep. I, was what, I was very lucky to have been one of the producers of the film Gods and Monsters. Yeah. McKellen as James Whale. And we recreated... The Bride of Frankenstein laboratory set for a flashback of him directing Bride of Frankenstein. So all these interconnections. Bride of Frankenstein is my favorite film of all time. Um, yeah, that's such a beautiful film. So this Frankenstein, the true story, was really this, um, the producer of it, Hunt Stromberg Jr., who was gay. He very much wanted to make a, a sort of a reboot, a reimagining of the two James Whale Frankenstein films, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And that's what this is all about. And I uncovered that I thought as a kid, I didn't know 
am I just imagining or reading into it all this gay stuff? I want to find out if it was intentional. And the more I got into it and interviewed people, I interviewed Jane Seymour for my fanzine back then at 17 and, and other people involved. And the deeper I got into it, it was like, yeah, it was completely intentional. In fact, it was so intentional. The producer and the screenwriters and some of the other gay people involved in the production called themselves the Lavender Hill Mob. And they were <laughs> purposefully scheming to get as much gay subtext into this film that could sneak by the network censors as they could. <laughs> and I just thought, I love oh, that. my God, this is the most incredible back. This is the most incredible behind the scenes story, especially for LGBTQ history and to reclaim and to claim this film for what it was really intended by these filmmakers to be that it deserved to be brought to everyone's attention in in the form of this book finally on the 50th anniversary and so the book is 400 color pages there's only 1,350 photos. <laughs> only. <laughs> only. Come on, That's Sam. Right. It's Jeez. Just, it's just a little pamphlet. <laughs> and, uh, and I also got Anne Rice, before she passed away, to write the foreword. It's the film that inspired her to write Interview with the Vampire and really wow. launched her entire career. She blames it all on this movie. <laughs> and, and then I got, I'm so proud of this, just, just this summer before the film came out, I've been trying to get this for a long time, and I finally got the afterword written by Guillermo del Toro, who was also wow. a huge fan of this film, and in fact is, all, is doing his own version of Frankenstein as we speak. In fact, it would have already been shooting had it not been for the actor strike, but it will start yeah. um, immediately when things get going again. For Netflix, big budget, Oscar Isaac, all these big stars are in it. It's going to be absolutely incredible to see what he does because Frankenstein wow. has been such a powerful influence in his life and his films. And he cites Frankenstein, the true story, as one of the many inspirations, even in making Shape of Water and other films of his. And he just writes eloquently about it in his afterword. And I'm just I'm so grateful for him doing that. And so anyway, all right, enough said. <laughs> that is available on Amazon uh, as well. And, uh, and only in hardback because it really is a coffee table book. Incredible. Mm. It's just it, all I can't great wait. visuals and artwork and all kinds of cool tribute posters and you name it. I'm and, so um, looking forward to reading it. It's just, yeah, I, I wish it was here already. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I love that, like, again, bringing back those intersections of queer history and horror. Yes. And it's just the perfect thing to be talking about this month. Before we take a quick break and dive into uh, more Hammer Horror with the Brides of Dracula, is there anything you can tell us that you're working on now, film-wise? Obviously, well, I, you know, the, I know the strike the is last, impacting. Yeah, we, it's been a little slow this year because of the strikes but i do and these days i do a lot of tv movies hallmark christmas movies lifetime thrillers romantic comedies that sort of thing and i did one in the spring called love and L love in zion national park for the aired on hallmark in may and then i'm doing a christmas movie called christmas rescue that is supposed to start shooting around either later this month or early next month. It just depends on how things are going on the strike and if they can get a waiver and blah, 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 blah. But right. we're trying to get that together. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that, that must just be such an interesting 
We have a, another uh, friend who's been on the show before, Michael Verratti. Have you ever met him? Yeah. Oh, okay, in fact, yeah. Michael wrote one of my Christmas movies. <laughs> that, I was that's what I was going to ask, which because he's such like a big horror nerd too, right? I or, love Michael. He's a yeah. huge horror nut, and yeah, we need to work together more. And we keep wanting to. This business is crazy, and we don't call the shots in that way. Of, right. of usually, I get a call. I'm basically these days just a director for hire. I got my fill of development hell. And I have a little PTSD <laughs> over it uh, with so many passion projects that never happened. Yeah. And I finally just said, you know what? I, at my age, I am I think I just want to direct and <laughs> not be scrounging for money, working on draft after draft, rewriting for five years, trying to get films going. I just don't have that time. And so I just do director for hire. So I'll get a call. They'll say we're other than this year, which has been off kilter, but They'll just say, we're going to be shooting in three weeks. You want to direct it? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, we'll send you the script. Do you want to read? You you should read the script. And I said, yes, I don't need to read the script. I will do it. (laughs) You're going to, you're offering me the part, the job. I'm taking it. That Um, that check clear. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's, it's just been so fantastic since I've done that. And I'm very lucky that after, you know, being in the business for all these years that I'm on lists and, and I do get called, so I don't really have to go look for work. And I just take the call, take the job, go prep it, direct it, turn in my director's cut, and then wash my hands and move on to the next thing. And between gigs, I write these books as my labor of love kind of thing, which is so much fun. Yeah, I'm really glad you do, because this is very important, like history that easily gets lost. And if we don't hold on to it and document it. So I'm, sure. yeah, I'm, I'm very glad. And again, it continues to invite that because, you know, there's always these discussions about, oh, horror is going woke. Horror is so gay these days. It's, no, it has always been that way. Yeah. We have been here since the foundations. Nosferatu, like all, all the way back then, we, until now, queer people have been involved in the shaping uh, of, of horror absolutely. history. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just love that you are part of that enduring legacy and have been fortunate enough to be able to preserve parts of it as well with your yeah, I mean, I really, rambunctiousness as a teenager. Yeah, if, if, I'm milit- <laughs> if I'm militant about anything, it's like claiming our history because yeah. so much of it yeah. was closeted and subverted and subtextualized and everything else that yeah. it really we all need to bring this bring the spotlight out on these things when it was obviously very intentional and yeah. just has never been recognized as such yeah and it highlights like the also not only the importance of queer history but also the importance of what happens when we come together like as varying communities when yeah. like straight people and queer people like just respect each other and, and each other's like contributions to work and what incredible things we can do if we're not so focused on <laughs> tearing each other apart so no exactly just, it just all it just all comes together thank you so much for sharing all about your books and and just for being here so we are going to take a really quick break and then we are going to talk about 1960 the brides of dracula Hey everybody, I'm Chris Fafalius and I'm the producer of Krista Makes a Podcast and the host of the One Hit Thunder Podcast. And I'm Matt Kelly, host of Horror Movie Night and the producer slash the head of content for the Geekscape Podcasting Network. Between the two of us, we have, believe it or not, 25 years of podcasting experience and we want to help you start your own podcast. We know podcasting and we want to share that knowledge with you. So whether you're new to podcasting or you want some feedback on your currently active podcast, we want to help. 
or perhaps you're just overwhelmed with all of the editing work. Well, we can help you with that also. You can check out our website at weknowpodcasting.com for more information. We're excited to help your podcasting dreams become a reality. All right. Welcome back. So this week we are continuing our really first ever exploration of Hammer Horror. Uh, We've been so long uh, uh, focused on the show uh, uh, through the perspective of American cinema and the history of uh, American horror that we've neglected Hammer, which has given us these enduring performances of like Christopher Lee's Dracula and Peter Cushing as Dr. Van Helsing and just so many other you know, contributions. So it's it, it was time. It was time to talk about Hammer Horror. So today we are continuing with The Brides of Dracula. This is, uh, again, produced Hammer Film Productions, directed by Terrence Fisher. We got Peter Cushing, David Keel, Peel, sorry, <laughs> David Peel, Frida Jackson, Yvonne Monlar, which is like my favorite name ever now. Um, <laughs> and all kinds of other delightful people. And just before we dive in, I wanted to, this is from the Nitrate Diva, Brides of Dracula, Dandy of the Damned, a sumptuous cautionary tale. The Brides of Dracula seduces, then shocks, revealing the rancid dysfunction festering beneath the surface of Gothic romanticism. As the title suggests, the film largely focuses on women, in particular the grave consequences of socially sanctioned female fantasies. An integral mother-son relationship also gives the plot a Freudian depth of depravity and enhances its subtle critique of women, enabling irredeemable monstrous men. As incarnated by David Peel, Baron Meinster is a spoiled, manipulative, sexually ambiguous Raquel who recognizes and ruthlessly exploits the images that women project onto him. He's the Prince of Darkness in Prince Charming's clothing. Joe, what did you think of The Brides of Dracula? As always, that's where we start. <laughs> I had a, I actually had a really fun time watching this film. I think that, again, as someone who... You know, my role on the show is to play the newbie and very much the newbie when it comes to the films, the Hammer Horror films. And so watching this after watching Horror of Dracula, I like this one a lot better for a couple of reasons. I thought that the story was really interesting. I thought it was really fascinating to have a story to begin with that has Dracula in the title, but really doesn't have anything to do with Dracula. And the whole time I'm like sitting at the edge of my seat because I was like, is he going to show up? Are we going to have Christopher Lee popping out somewhere? What is this? Like, how do we how do we make that connection? And I also really loved Peter Cushing in this. I thought that his like very like him getting thrown around by the Baron and all of the fight choreography with the crucifix. It was just so much fun to see Peter Cushing kick ass. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So lots of, uh, I had a really great time watching this film. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. Cause I grew up, my kind of thoughts of Peter Cushing is like star Wars. Cause again, I'm also late to appreciating hammer horror. I've seen its influence on horror and the uh, depictions of particular of Dracula after uh, Christopher Lee. But Peter Cushing's hot in this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> His hair is doing so much. And like when he, like, there's that point where the first time where he meets the Baron and they're running, he's running outside of the castle and his hair gets tousled. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, hair and makeup really did a great job of making <laughs> Peter Cushing look good with the very kept hair and then the the fighting hair. Yeah, absolutely. 
So Sam, when we reached out to ask you about doing this, and I let you know, hey, we're doing this deep dive into Hammer Horror, and asked you like, hey, what would you like to talk about? This came up pretty quickly. What is it about Brides of Dracula? (laughs) Yeah, it's one of my absolute favorite Hammer films, but it didn't always start out that way. Yeah, I was going to ask, that's where I wanted Um, to start. Like you said, you would change your opinion. Yeah, when I saw it as a kid, I had seen horror of Dracula, which was the first of the Hammer Draculas. Um, they had become really big in horror films in 1957 and 58. It really started majorly with Curse of Frankenstein, with Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein and Christopher Lee as the monster. And that had been a big surprise hit. It was the first color Frankenstein film ever made, and it was bloody, and it was, it was much more it was just different from the universal classic gothic black and whites that we were all used to seeing and it really rebooted that franchise in a major way and sorry uh, real quick do you remember how old you were when you saw a hammer horror picture for the first time i saw the first one i saw was probably around 1962 and i started my dad i was really spoiled my dad owned movie theaters and I would get to see a lot of films for free. I would also, gosh, by the time I was even 10 or 11 or 12, I was booking horror kitty matinees on Saturday mornings of just showing films that I hadn't seen and wanted to see or whatever. But, cool. and, but he, they were showing films on kitty matinees. They would have, and then things started showing up on television. I remember specifically seeing Hammer's Phantom of the Opera with Herbert Lom, which was 62, that may have been the first one that I saw in a movie wow. theater, first run. and But I was just fascinated by that whole thing. But somehow I had seen Horror of Dracula, which I really liked. And I really liked Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. And I loved Christopher Lee's Dracula. And that was the, the second, after Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula came in 1958 and was a, a mass, even bigger, massive hit. And, and both of those franchises were rebooted in a big way, and they spawned many sequels that Hammer did. Now, when I saw Brides of Dracula, I probably saw it maybe around 62 or 63, 64, somewhere in there. So I was still very young. I was only maybe seven or eight years old. And But I had fallen in love with Christopher Lee as Dracula. And when the movie... This is the second one, and it's called Brides of Dracula, and it has Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. It's like, where is Christopher Lee as Dracula? (laughs) And I was pissed when I realized that he's not going to be anywhere in this movie. And I just thought, what, 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 how could they do this? And I couldn't get past that. And I didn't like David Peel as the vampire. I thought, he doesn't have black hair. He doesn't have that manly, whatever. He's a little bit, he seems a, a little softer and a, a little not, it's just, it just the whole thing just didn't work for me. And I was just like, get that out of here. And then not long after I had seen it, then Hammer's Dracula Prince of Darkness came out in the theaters and I saw that first run in the theater in 1966 so at that time I was 10 years old and they brought back Christopher Lee as Dracula they did not have Peter Cushing as Van Helsing in that one though so that was art I was pissed about that but I was happy 
that a Dracula movie was at least going to have freaking Dracula in it. And so I got back on board with the series with those, with Dracula, Prince of Darkness, followed by Dracula's Risen from the Grave, followed by Chase the Blood of Dracula, Scars of Dracula. And then finally, they updated the franchise to present day with Dracula AD 1972 and brought back Peter Cushing as like Van Helsing's grandson or son or whatever, because now yeah. it's present day. And, and he's reunited with Christopher Lee fighting him. And they did two of those. They did that and the Satanic Rites of Dracula. And, and, and then Cushing played Van Helsing also in The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which was at that time a kung fu vampire movie. They just, <laughs> they did a lot of these vampire films. And, and there were many other vampire films that didn't oh, yeah. even, was it, weren't even that. Vampire Lovers, Vampire Circus, Kiss of the Vampire, you name it. There's, they were all over the place with vampires. And, Brides of Dracula, just I didn't revisit it the way I revisited the others because I loved the others so much. When I finally did revisit Brides of Dracula, I completely changed my mind. It is now one of my absolute favorites, if not my favorite, of all Hammer Horror films. It's it's so much more intricate in the characterization. First yeah. of all, Dracula, in all of the Christopher Lee Dracula films, you could probably write down the, the dialogue that he speaks on one page. He almost yeah. says nothing. Right. He's just this very evil presence, and it's a, a very indelible one, and I don't yeah. want to take anything away from that. But, as, but his character is not multi-layered. And the character that David Peel plays in Brides of Dracula is just... So fascinating. As you've already touched on, he's got this ambiguous sexuality. He's got all, he can be very evil in one minute, but then very sympathetic. And is he being manipulative or, is, or are we really feeling sorry for him? And right. stuff? But what struck me the most as a gay viewer was I immediately picked up on, as an adult, and I don't remember how old I was, but it was early, but probably in college, something like that. Probably late teens, early 20s. I, and I was obviously, after Frankenstein, the true story and things, I was looking for gay subtext in yeah. films. And it screamed out at me that it, it's, it, the images are just so amazing. This girl, Yvonne Montclair, comes to this castle to spend the night and she steps out on her balcony and she looks down at another balcony where David Peel has come out of uh, the, the French doors and is standing on the balcony and they catch a look at each other and it's all very mysterious. And then she meets the mother or she's already met his mother who the Baroness who was head of this castle and you come to find out that he is a prisoner in his bedroom and he is chained to his ankle with a chain where he can't leave. He is an yeah. actual prisoner. And the dialogue when the mother is talking about her son, how he's mentally, he's got mental illness in those days. And even when I saw it in the early 70s, 
homosexuality was still considered a mental illness. It had not been taken off of the American Psychiatric Society. It was still a mental illness. So as soon as the mental illness words started coming up, I was like, okay. And then, yeah, you know, sorry, on, sorry, just sorry to interrupt real quick, just on that point, because I actually have a little piece about that I wanted to read because this yes. is perfect, like perfect segue. So this is from a Fangoria article. And it's uh, this article studies a lot of the queer stuff, like his lavender cape and the dandyism yep. of it all. But I love this. Uh, one, the real reason the Brides of Dracula strikes me is especially queer. It's the Baron's initial predicament that's likely to hit close to home for many queer people. His mother is ashamed of him, would rather let the villagers think he's dead than have his true nature be known. It hurt yep. me too much not to be able to present my only child to my friends, she laments, going on to ask bitterly, are madmen happy? At the time of the film's release, male homosexuality was not only illegal in the UK, but was considered a mental disorder. The Baron's room has become his jail cell, and the gold chain that keeps him there might as well be attached to the closet. So, I just that whole conversation. And she even she even uses terminology like his unnatural desires. Oh my god. We we are totally equating vampirism with homosexuality and and also it's just this whole Oedipal thing that goes on between he and his mother mm-hmm. that's so sick and weird yep. and he ends up I hate to give spoilers away, but we have to talk about it. But you know, for a 50, some 60 year old movie, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> he gets this young girl to get the key so he can get unchained. And then he ends up biting his mother and turning her into a vampire. It's all so crazy. And yeah. when you think that this came out in 1960, the exact same year that Psycho came out, and you mm. start comparing the Norman Bates relationship yes. with his mother. And how even Norman Bates has this sort of quasi-gay thing, and the reason he's killing girls is because he can't perform and he's impotent with them. And it's just, all these parallels, I just think it was on the minds of very intelligent, smart writers at the time. And it just seemed like it was a subject that was very rich that was coming up in things. And people have also compared, talked about how this, this movie has a lot of the same themes of Suddenly Last Summer, the Tennessee Williams book Mm. and movie, and the mother-son relationship and all this stuff and the overbearing mother and the gay son. And you just can't, you can't avoid seeing that in when you watch it through that lens, at least. And it's truly, there's, until The Vampire Lovers, which is in 1970, 10 years later, Mm-hmm. You didn't really get much of LGBTQ representation or themes or subtext, hardly at all, in any of the Hammer films. It took all. It took ten years, and then they did uh, an adaptation of Carmilla, which was the Sheridan Le Fanu vampire story. Yeah. And now we're like super dead on lesbianism and and it is saturated in that film my god and they up they suddenly had nudity everywhere and it was just like it was like a new day for hammer but because before then they'd never even shown a nipple and and there (laughs) just like full-on boobs the whole movie and more than just boobs yeah but i think about the italian influence on that with all yeah that kind of yeah, came out definitely. at that time because we talked about what was it, Vampiros, Lesbos, and uh-huh. you know, some, some of these Italian vampire movies that really focused on like lesbianism and the wild yeah. women. 
but uh, speaking right, of lesbianism, <laughs> there's moments in Brides of Dracula where it even touches on that. Mm-hmm. The vampires, the, the young girl in it has come to be a teacher at this academy, and she meets one of the other young teachers there, played by Andrea Melli. And she ends up becoming getting bitten by David Peel, our vampire, and yeah. comes back as a vampire. And when and she comes to the this to our main heroine Yvonne Moncler, Moncler, sorry, Yvonne Moncler, and she's coming towards her and she's saying words like "I want to hug and kiss you," and what's all this? What's not even subtext? This is absolutely overt <laughs> lesbianism. <laughs> And, and it was like, sh- really shocking. I mean, I'm just stunned that this got by the censors back then. Now, in England, these films were adults only. They were, kids were not allowed to see them. When they got released to the United States, there was no heavy-duty rating system at that time. There was right. no rating system at all. And kids got in to see these. And so it is. it was pretty shocking stuff at that time. The other thing that David Peel does as a vampire in the movie, he bites women, but he also bites Dr. Van Helsing. Oh, yes, he does. And <laughs> Although they don't show it. It's it's showing. But, but what's amazing is he cape up. Yeah. And as he's coming down on him, he just envelops him in the shroud of cape. Yep. Yeah. What went under? What went on under that cave? We will never know. And <laughs> it was very—you could tell that they—they they knew this was shocking and that this was mm-hmm. going to push the envelope with the censors. And I think even just covering it up with the cape was part of that sensibility or fear that they were really pushing the envelope here. Yeah. Now I, in my in the course of getting all these interviews that I did for my fanzine in the early 70s, I did interview, Chris, I, I interviewed Peter Cushing, I interviewed Terrence Fisher, the director of this movie, and I also interviewed the composer of this film. And interestingly, I've done a lot of research on Terrence Fisher. I didn't ask him specifically about the homosexuality aspects of it, and I could kill myself, kick myself now. But again, I was so closeted at the time that I interviewed him at 17 that I was afraid to bring it up much. And But I have read his answers to those questions in other interviews, and he vehemently denies that there was ever any thought of homosexuality between... Van Helsing and David Peel, and right. or the, you know the Baron Meinster character, and but what about in general? But he de- he completely owns the lesbian aspects of okay. the, of the Andrea Melli thing. He's oh, of course we're total lesbian, and but I think he's I think that Terrence Fisher is old school. I think to admit to. They had to have had thoughts about homosexuality. And here's why. David Peel, the actor, was gay. (laughs) And how could he's about to be nuzzling a guy on the neck? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. There's just no way you couldn't possibly (laughs) avoid thinking about, wait a minute. There's just no way they could have avoided thinking. Do you know, was David like out to like inner circle people was it kind of open secret or my impression is that david was out to the people to the people that worked with him and around and when i entered i I did 
I, I think I mentioned it earlier that when I interviewed the composer, he outed him in the interview. And this was right. in 1973. David was still alive. David had given up acting and opened an antique shop because he was like Peter Henwood from Rocky Horror. Like, what is yeah, going on? But sorry, exactly. Go ahead. <laughs> and but he and and Malcolm Williamson, the composer was, you could tell he was a little homophobic. He was making fun of the fact that David Peel was so, was rather effeminate. He said, oh, yeah, he brought his two poodles to set every day. uh, Which means he probably didn't suspect you were gay because he was spiritually, including you in that, you know. Yeah, he may not have. But at the same time, I just know that David Peel, it was not a secret that he was gay. And I know that David Peel approached his performance. He had to have brought some of that to the table. Going back to the mother-son relationship and the being chained up Mm -hmm. and all these kinds of things. There's absolutely no way that he was performing those scenes without making the connection that, you know, oh, this really is a parallel to homosexuality. And that's why I think it actually works so brilliantly because he's... He has the right frame of mind and the sensibility to let that subtly come through. And the way it, everything about him is androgynous a bit. He's got this this blonde hairdo with a spit curl in the middle right. of the forehead. <laughs> which, by the way, if you've ever seen Roman Polanski's The Fearless Vampire Killers, I am a hundred percent convinced that this the vampire, the main vampire's gay son in that movie is very much based on this on David Peel and Brides of Dracula. Their hairdo yeah. is the same. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Well, and I also wonder about the influence on interview, you know, yeah, Dandy. Sure. And yeah. it was just I'm sure that it yeah. was another seminal film for her. Had to be. It just yeah. It brings up all these sexual issues that weren't really, okay, you could make an argument that Dracula's daughter back in the 30s was certainly very lesbian. Yeah, we talked about that last year or uh, this year, yeah. That could certainly be cited as a forerunner of this, for sure. But um, but there wasn't a huge amount of dealing with the sexuality of the vampire characters, particularly. Especially not male, because we fetishized lesbianism for a long time. We had a heterosexual perspective. Fetishizes that differently, obviously, than males. Yeah, it is is a bit shocking. Yeah. And by the way, just a sideline, since we're all Elvira fans... Da- um, Dracula's Daughter is one of Cassandra Peterson's all-time favorite horror yeah. movies. She absolutely loves it. And uh, anyway, I just I love that fact, and and it's always been one of her favorites. Like and that. now knowing <laughs> that she has T as her girlfriend for twenty yeah. years, it suddenly even makes more sense. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but but anyway, getting back to brides, I I just. I was blown away by the layers of all this psychology and all these gray areas of sexuality and everything laced through that movie. And you just don't have that kind of sophistication or depth in most of the other Hammer vampire movies, which were just a little bit more straightforward, good versus evil. And yeah. And until, of course, Vampire Lovers, which kind of, whoa, really was a whiplash of a moment. 
Um, yeah, and this and the really cool thing about this film is because it can operate on multiple levels as well. Like as queer people, we're watching it and we can sympathize with this experience that he's having. But at the same time, for the straight spectators, like he's the villain and yeah. he's this threat to that white Christian male dominance. And yeah. uh, you know what again when we talk about like dandyism, and again, this kind of reflects sort of an earlier conversation we had about rope, but you have so the dandy, these creatures have no state of being other than cultivating the beautiful in their appearance, satisfying their passions, feeling, and thinking. It's this, like, focus on what I want and need in this kind of, like, male dandy figure that's, like, goes back to, like, why the homosexual is so dangerous. Because we're not here to to have families. We're not here to love. We're here for sex. We're here for these monstrous, dark, depraved sorts of things. Makes us perfect fodder for, like, vampire stories. So you so when you watch it, it's there are other people who are looking at him, and they're not having this sympathetic experience. They're like, this is the threat. Like, he's so beautiful, and he's taking our women, and he's going to harm them and take them down these dark paths to lesbianism and whatever. And so you have... Van Helsing is the hero and he's he wants to save the main woman and he almost seems to flirt with her at times like he wants to so it's just this just operates on a few different levels that are really interesting when you're watching and thinking about what like straight people at the time watching this yep see Mm -hmm. this is exactly why we need to like stay on the righteous path (laughs) exactly exactly. and then he even gets a one-up on van helsing like you we were talking about he bites him so it's that's something that even i don't think dracula ever does in the films no it's does dracula ever get up on van helsing no not not sexy motherfucker certainly (laughs) (laughs) it's tempting it's also the movie just doesn't have a standard structure to it either van helsing isn't even introduced into the movie until 35 minutes or more into the film. It it actually mirrors a little bit in horror of Dracula because the yeah. first act is really a, between Jonathan Harker and Dracula. And then right. Van Helsing comes in to investigate. Yeah. Um, Which we talked about I, just as a side note is a really nice influ- Like when we think about the beginning of Psycho where it's like Marion yeah. Crane set up as the hero and then is killed Perhaps. and then Scream with Casey Becker. It's here you have that in 1958, this plot device that's a really nice yeah. twist. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're absolutely, you, you took the words out of my mouth. It was really a hot thing, obviously, in the late 50s. And right then to the first act, you go in one direction and then you pull the rug out from under yeah. and go in a whole new direction. And now uh, you have a new protagonist and everything that, that comes in. And so, yeah, it definitely mirrors that structure for sure. And so it's it's interesting from that perspective. And it's also, we have to talk about how beautiful this film is. Yeah. It, the sets, the lighting is so colorful and yeah. so... It's like jewel and, tones. And, and uh, all these, and you mentioned lavenders and purples, which mm-hmm. obviously is a symbol for queer everything and boy is it just there's lavender everywhere all over this film in the costuming (laughs) in the lighting everything so there's no question in my mind that there were lots of people on the creative team of this which were all on board with all of this subtext going on and it just it's absolutely beautifully shot and the sets are gorgeous and the costumes are gorgeous Everything it just works together to make this such a unique film that um, yeah. just really stands out of, of the 
certainly, well, for all Hammer films, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But, um, oh, absolutely. It, it's just so and so highly charged with everything. The music score by Malcolm Williamson was not the regular Hammer composer at that time. James Bernard did Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula and his yeah. very bombastic, brassy, he, 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 right. <laughs> his, his whole, yeah. the notes that he picked were actually in his brain, in his mind, he was actually pronouncing Dracula. Yeah. The horror of Dracula. And with brass and very bombastic, whereas Malcolm Williamson took it in a different direction of being a little more romanticized and he had he used the organ a lot. It was yes. a great deal of that, and that's something that 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 James Bernard rarely used. And so it was a very different score for Hammer, but very effective. And I I thought he did a, a really good job with it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it when in and I also agree with you, Joe, that Cushing was absolutely like a swashbuckling superhero in this movie. He, I think it's the best of all his portrayals of Van Helsing. I think it gives him more to do, more excitement to do. Mm-hmm. And he just, Cushing just steals the movie almost. He is so good in this. The other, another the actress who plays the mother, Martita Hunt, is an absolutely brilliant character actress who had already become hugely famous in England for playing Miss Havisham in mm-hmm. David Lean's production of Great Expectations. Mm-hmm. And I think I, she certainly won awards. I don't remember if she was nominated for an Oscar, but she won British Academy Awards and different stuff. Wow. She was very well-known and highly respected actress. And for her to even be doing a Hammer film, especially in the eyes of of British moviegoers was the equivalent of having was Sir Ralph Richardson or Sir John Gilgood or someone of that ilk mm. in your movie. And she elevated just the whole, the sophistication level yeah. in the eyes of moviegoers there who knew her as a star. And she, oh, was see, that's great cultural context, like understanding that about her. That's so cool. Yeah, and she and what one of the most incredible things about when she's after her son Baron Meinster has bitten her and she becomes a vampiress. There's this great shot of Peter Cushing as Van Helsing in the foreground, and she comes out this door way in the background, and it's all out of focus, and she's coming toward him, and you know mm-hmm. that she's a vampire, but and, but he hasn't seen her yet. And as she gets closer and closer, he turns around and she lifts this scarf yeah. over the lower part of her face to cover. You, you see her fangs just for a yeah. split second, but that yeah. scarf suddenly covers up almost like a veil, the lower part of her face. And then she eventually lowers the veil, but she keeps her fingers and she even nervously m- moves them in this sort of nervous fashion, but keeping her teeth covered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, one reason, and she certainly made it work in such an indelible way, but she did not like speaking her dialogue with 
uh, the fangs in because yeah. it, it gave her like a lisp or whatever. And she yeah, it's a true blood so, problem. So All those she actually, I think, came up with these ideas to keep it covered so that they could take the fangs out while she's speaking. And But you just get that little glimpse of them before the veil goes up. And of course, then they could have cut away and taken the fangs away and stuff and had her complete the scene with her fingers covering herself. And then at the very end of the scene, you see them again, but she's not talking. She's not yeah. talking. But And I think it's a lavender veil as well. Yes, it's right? a lavender veil. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And she, I just, that haunts me. Even as a kid, when I wasn't such a big fan of that film, that scene haunted me. The, it was like an embarrassment or not wanting to reveal that you're a vampire. And I had just never seen that before with this, just trying to keep the teeth covered sure, by just yeah. covering your mouth a little bit with your fingers and, and a veil or whatever. And there's something just really haunting about that. When I think of this film, I of course think of David Peel and Cushing, but I always think, and whenever I think of the mother character, I always think of those moments are just so creepy and yeah really and really what good. a and what a reversal for the baroness because she yes. enters the film as like this person who everyone is so afraid of mm-hmm. and is I, I having not seen the film i was completely under the impression that she was one of she was the main bride of yeah. Dracula, oh, right yeah. i think and you then, absolutely think that when she yeah. comes into the tavern there's mm-hmm. this push in on her and she's got the cape that has mm-hmm. these two, I forget if they're red or lavender at that point, and maybe red s- scarf coming down almost like the lining of a black Dracula cape where it's lined in red. It was definitely evoking that kind of thing. And she, they push in and the music has a little evil riff. And you, I, I was convinced she was a vampire. She was the Dracula of this movie. It was just going to be a woman vampire who's the head of the castle. Of course right. she's like, but she's not. And you're right. It's such a reversal because when she is a vampire, she's meek and covering her mouth and embarrassed. And right. this all-powerful yeah. evil character. Um, and I thought the lesbian overtones, they start with her there seducing seducing danielle to come back and i it doesn't even occur to me that the reason why she's doing it is a new meal for her son right it's i was like oh my gosh this is for her this is entirely absolutely you're convinced that that whole scene plays as a lesbian seduction Mm -hmm. because of that and again i don't think the actors could have possibly not known what the impression the audience would be at that point of course and she's seducing her to come with her to the castle and stay the night. Wing. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, it's, it's, it's just such a great film with so, again, so many layers and so many. Yeah. I can't wait to watch it again. Joe, before we wrap up, Joe, did you have any other random notes or stray observations? I actually have a question not related to the film. Sorry, really quick, because I can't believe none of us, I love her, the mother's comment early, and I can't believe none of us made fun of it yet, was, was gay things happen here? Yes! Balls. Yes! <laughs> makes me laugh. But anyway, sorry, that's just infantile humor, but she's gay, something, gay stuff happens here. Balls. Yeah, gay, yeah, gay balls. <laughs> and, 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 I know, I, and that cracks me up. And 
And it's, it reminds me of when Una O'Connor in Bride of Frankenstein, who plays the skittish ha- housekeeper lady, when she, when Dr. Pretorius comes, who's played by this very sort of effeminate Ernest Thesiger, she, she announces that she goes to tell Dr. Frankenstein, there's a very queer gentleman to see you, sir. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, they uh-huh. used that word on purpose. And I yeah. looked at, I even did research. People will say, oh, queer didn't mean that in 1935. Oh, yes, it did in mm. England. Yeah. You look it up. And it was very intentionally laced in there. Yeah, it yeah. had double meaning, but... It was, again, part of that whole subtext. Yeah, and there's absolutely. no question that James Whale and all these British actors, everybody knew exactly what that word what was What they implying. were doing, 100%. <laughs> uh, sorry, Joe, what was your question? <laughs> sure, so I, I have two comments. One, I love a, a, a manic housekeeper, yeah. the familiar, because when you meet her, she's giving Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca yeah. Again, which is also adding to lesbian subtext. Yeah. Right. And, and in fact, Rebecca starts off very similarly to the way that when she meets Baron, very yeah. visually similar. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Jeff. Yeah. No. And so I just wanted to call that out because I was like, okay, this is amazing storytelling and how that's that character has that queer subtext and still fulfilling a similar role. And also just like the cool, how you link it to a kind of a female Renfield, right? And yes. what now, you're talking about Frida Jackson as yes. the, the sort of housekeeper or whatever. She, I'm, I'm not sure what her job is there actually. Yeah. Great, entirely great. clear. Right. I mean, it, it, at first I, you're absolutely right. She is like a Renfield. But also, I questioned whether she was the lover of the Baroness and in the in, in the beginning. And boy, her character is. But the this servantile character played by Frida Jackson is also an incredible character. And she, when she starts cackling like this wicked witch of the West, yeah. and she lays down on the grave to coax the vampire yeah. woman to come up out of the grave and all yeah. this stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of lesbian just drenched over those moments. And yeah, it's, it, she's an amazing actress as well. She was also very well-known character actress in England and had also been in Great Expectations with Martita Hunt. And But they apparently didn't like each other in real life. Uh, <laughs> of course. And, but they were trying to one-up each other and do the most incredible steal every scene and i think it really just amplified their characters really great yeah 100 percent the last question and this is just a a personal question for sam it occurred to me it's not something i got to in our first half of this episode today but so you're doing this fanzine bizarre as a teenager what was the response and impact from sending that out? Do you get people now who come up to you who have the copies? Like what, yes. how did that, uh, I am so curious as to you're putting this out there, especially like at that time, this is pre-internet where yeah. zines are really the lifeblood of of not only um, fandom, horror fandom specifically, but also queer culture and dissemination of information. Yeah. And so what what was the response in the following that once after you've ended it? And like, how could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was really hard in the beginning. Of course, it, it, the first issues were really amateur, mimeographed and stapled along the sides and stacked paper, not that. even wrap around. Um, <laughs> 
And those mimeographed stencils, you can only get about 70 or 80 copies before you run out of ink. And so those were limited to 70 or 80 copies. And most of those were sold locally at my dad's theater or the newsstand at school. But um, I started to take out classified ads in other fanzines. There were also fan clubs that would have fan club newsletters, um, like the Christopher Lee fan club, the Peter Cushing fan club. And I would put classified ads in those. And it word started to spread. And when I went to started doing offset and could increase the numbers of copies, I was doubling the print, the number of issue, number of copies I would do with each issue. And by the time I got to, I first had a, I first called it Pit, and I did two issues of Pit, and then I renamed it Bizarre, and so I started over again. But um, Bizarre number three, which came out in 1974, at that time I was up to about 1,500, selling 1,500 of them, which was pretty wow. fucking good, I think. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it would be a mostly mail order. But by then, I had gotten some a few key stores to carry it. Larry Edmonds in Los Angeles, which is still going today. Wow. A store called Cinemabilia in New York, which was the mecca for everybody. Any film fan would go there if they visited New York from all over the world. And then in London, I had the Cinema Bookshop that Larry, I think his name, uh, something Zentner owned. And there was a store in Australia and one in Paris. And I've heard from so many people from all over the world who saw my magazine and bought it when they would visit those stores, including some very big people. I met William Friedkin oh, in wow. 74, late in 74 in the fall. And I brought a copy of my new issue that had just come out in August with Frankenstein, the true story on the cover. And that was the year that Exorcist came out, and he was at the height of... He was the number one big director in the world at that moment. Oh, yeah. yep. And when I met him, I handed him a copy of Bizarre, which had a review of The Exorcist in it. Thank God, a great review. And he <laughs> said, and his first words were, oh, I've seen this. I bought a copy at uh, Larry Edmonds. And thank you for the good wow. review. <laughs> I couldn't That's believe it. Awesome. And I later worked for, I was Brian De Palma's assistant for several yeah. years. And De Palma remembered seeing it at Cinemabilia in New York and had bought copies. And Fran, when I met Francis Ford Coppola, he knew of the fanzine. And Amazing. It, it, was, it, it really did get around. Now, I went to London in... Uh, October of, two, of 2019, just before COVID, to interview Leonard Whiting on camera. He was he played Dr. Frankenstein in Frankenstein, The True Story. And I was doing the extras for the Shout Factory Blu-ray. And we had to get an interview. I'd already interviewed him over the phone for an early a magazine where I wrote about the movie. But I, when I was doing the extras, I had to go over to London and get an in-person interview with Leonard Whiting. While I was there... A couple of monster kids who were my age <laughs> got in touch with me and said, hey, we are big fans. We want to take you to lunch. One of them was the editor and publisher of the Dark Side magazine and Infinity magazine, which are British monthlies. Mm -hmm. And 
The other was a design, a graphic designer who designs a British publication called We Belong Dead and all their associated yeah. books. They both came with their copies of Bazaar Number no. 3 with Frankenstein, the True Story on the cover that they bought at the London cinema shop way back in 1974. And they got me to sign them to them. Wow. I was just freaking blown away. Cool. Yeah. It was the coolest thing. And um, the editor... Uh, of those magazines was Alan Bryce. We became great friends. He got me to interview Elvira for The Dark Side on the year that she came out with her memoir. So the same month in October of that year was what, 2020 or or was it 21? I forget. Um, But so we had this cover story with a big interview with her the same month that her memoir came out and was a huge New York Times bestseller. And the same month that our film, Elvira's Haunted Hills, came out with Shout Factory Blu-ray in a big anniversary edition. Yeah. So it was all cool synergy with that. And then the other guy that I met there, Steve Kirkham, this graphic designer, he ended up designing the book, <laughs> I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter. And, of course, Frankenstein, The True Story. Had to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At that lunch, he pitched you. He said, have you ever thought about doing a book on Frankenstein, The True Story? And I said... Actually, yes. And he goes, if you get around to doing it, I want to design it. And I said, I want to do it for the 50th anniversary and have it come out in 2023. So so amazing. Yeah, all of these connections born out of my fanzine way back in the 70s. It's just freaky. And talk about connections that are are things that have have paid off in later years. I'll tell you one other quick thing before we go. Sorry. (laughs) No, um, no apologies. Thank you for when, spending the time. <laughs> when I when I first, okay, in junior high school, the teacher told us we had to memorize a monologue. They're thinking Shakespeare. I'm not into that at all. I'm allergic nope. to iambic pentameter. No, thank you. <laughs> and I raise my hand and I say, could I do Edgar Allan Poe? And of course, they know me as the monster kid and they're like, not surprised. And they're like, yes, Mr. Urban, you can do Edgar Allan Poe. So I go home. And back in those days, this is like the late 60s, there was no home, there was no video, nothing. But I had tape recorded on reel-to-reel audio tapes, the soundtracks off of the TV speaker for a bunch of horror films, including Pit and the Pendulum with Vincent Price. And I transcribed, going back and forth, the whole monologue of, of Vincent Price at the ending of that film. And memorize that. Now, in my mind, I know this isn't Edgar Allan Poe. It's the screenwriter's words, Richard Matheson, the great Richard Matheson, who I am legend and all the, yeah. the early Poe films. And he did all kinds of cool stuff. But I figured the teacher wouldn't necessarily catch on. And she didn't. <laughs> and I got an A. <laughs> I went in the next day and I did this monologue and I did... And it's, do you know where you are, Bartolome? You're about to enter hell. Hell, the neverworld, the infernal region, the abode of the damned, a place of torment, Gehenna, Naraka, the pit, and the pendulum, the razor edge of destiny, thus the condition of man bound on an island from which he can never nor hope to escape, surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. Bow. Okay, scene. <laughs> so then, about a year later, I, I bamboozle my way to meet Vincent Price backstage at... Oliver, where he's playing Fagan in Atlanta, Georgia, and I held a gun to my mother's head to drive me down there, the four-hour drive from Asheville to Atlanta, to see it. 
And when I meet Vincent Price, that's love. <laughs> I I recite that. I said, I know your monologue from Pit and the Pendulum. And he says, you do not. And I said, yes, I do. And here it is. And there were other fans waiting to see him and it got a big applause. So it, it made an impression. And then when I saw him the next year, he was doing a lecture tour in North Carolina at a university. And I got my mother to drive me to that one too. And when he saw me, he remembered me by name and he turned to the other fans in line and said, this kid knows my monologue from the Mitchell. And I was like, his performing monkey. It's like, perform it for them. <laughs> and he got me to perform it for them. So that that's why when I ran into him in London at the Diana Rigg play, he knew when you. I turned around, he was like, Sam, what are you doing here? I had really made an impression. Okay, that's flash amazing. forward several decades. And Cassandra Peterson invites me up to her house. I'd already gotten to know her and we were friends and she played a small part in one of my movies, not as Elvira. But she was considering me to direct Elvira's Haunted Hills. And she had me come up to her house to meet with she and her husband at that time. And she hands me the script and goes, Sam, this is a spoof of the Vincent Price Edgar Allan Poe movies. Are you familiar with those? And I said, Cassandra, <laughs> Am I? Do you know where you are, Bartolome? You're about to enter hell. Hell, the never world. <laughs> and I go into that whole monologue and she cocks her head looking at me like I'm totally nuts. And as soon as I finish, she just points her finger at me and says, you're hired. <laughs> so, that's oh, uh, that incredible. paid off in, in a really big way from my oh. from junior high school on. <laughs> That's oh, so well, thank amazing. you. I, I just love that story because so Joshua and I were doing this partnership with the Lambda Archives here in San Diego. And one of the things that they do as part of their community outreach is like they do, they make zines and they teach people, especially like young queer kids, how to uh, make zines and the importance of zines, especially with regards to queer culture and history. And so hearing your story and we're going to encourage as many people as possible to get your to get your book because there it does open it like it there's something about the passion that somebody has and sharing that with the world yep. in a way that's like tangible right a blog is a blog but there's nothing quite like holding something in your hand and yeah. knowing that it was made with attention love and care so thank you absolutely thank you for that story and yeah. just for being here today it's just yeah it's been such a delight for me to listen to you insight into the film and into your book. So thank you so much. Yeah. I've loved it. Thank, thank you for you. having me. And sorry, I went late. <laughs> no, it's a, we, I try to keep it at an hour for your time. So I'm glad that you gave us a little extra. Oh, so appreciate it. I did, want to, me up. <laughs> I did want to say real quick, because it is LGBTQ History Month. And I think something that's very important to stop and recognize is that 2023 is a very big anniversary. It is the 50th anniversary of homosexuality being removed from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. 2023 is a big year for us. And we're talking about a lot of 50th anniversaries, 50th anniversary of The Exorcist, 50th anniversary of uh, the Frankenstein, the true story of all these other things. And for queer people, that was a huge one and really applies to what we were talking about with Absolutely. the Brides of Dracula coming out during a time where it was illegal. And I know it's a little different like there. This is obviously an American <laughs> conversation with the DSM, but just incredible how far we've come in 50 years <laughs> even it, it, though it's me at times <laughs> and it ties in and how important it is as i was saying to claim our history and our past that, that wasn't necessarily recognized at the time absolutely 
Sam, thank you so much for being here. Tell people where they can find you on the social media. Yes, I'm on mainly uh, my wheelhouse because I'm an old timer is Facebook. <laughs> and it's and as you can tell, I'm pretty verbose and my books are long. So my posts are long and they don't they have text limits on Instagram and very tight text limits on X. And so those yeah. are not as great for me when I, I do repost stuff on Instagram, but I always have to edit it down to fit in there. So if you really want to see my stuff in its in its uncut form, <laughs> go to Facebook. And but I'm also on Instagram. I'm, I'm on Facebook as Sam Irvin. I'm on Instagram as Sam underscore Irvin I R V I N underscore Director. Yes, <laughs> yes, you are, and I do. I enjoy your your Instagram not only because you do always share great stories, and I like to read. Hey, if you're going to go on that journey, I'll read. But the even more wonderful aspect of your Instagram is getting to see your outfits. <laughs> you are quite, you're quite a clothes horse and you always have cool stuff going on. And <laughs> yeah, I love, I, <laughs> so it's I, fun I, to see. <laughs> I, I love, I figure I might as well have a late in life career as a male model. So I'm just getting my drip on. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much again for being here. We'll have links to all of the books and all the things that we talked about in the description in the show notes below. Dear listener, thank you for being here. Joe, as always, thank you for coming along the journey as I continue to try to break your mind with horror. (laughs) And good night all. Thanks, Joshua and Joe. Good night. Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. listening to the Geekscape Network. 